Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. dreamers and welcome to another episode of the sandman unlocked i'm one of your co-hosts ben and i'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of the sandman episode 10 lost hearts i'm joined by three that's right three co-hosts ashley salutations sean what up and bex greetings on each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections as usual. First, we will summarize the week's episode, and then we'll provide our hot takes. After that, we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown, and we will wrap up by offering final thoughts. Ben, over to you for the summary. Thank you, Sean. So this is what originally was the final episode of the season until they came in about I don't know, a few weeks or a month late and dropped in a bonus 11th episode. But for all intents and purposes, this ends our current story for Morpheus. And so in this episode, we have the culmination of all the different people coming together and resolving the issue of Rose being the Dream Vortex. And so what ends up happening is the first part of the episode, we have Rose and Jed. They're still at the hotel. Um, they are talking to the Corinthian. The Corinthian is trying to convince Rose to definitely take over the dreaming and destroy everything. So that way the Corinthian will be free. Dream's also there trying to convince Rose that she has to die to save humanity, which are kind of, those are two difficult choices to have to make between dying and not dying. Um, and so we're going to see Rose struggle with that and talk to different people throughout the, sh- you know, throughout the rest of the episode to get an idea of, you know, which way she should go. Dream and the Corinthian finally have their standoff via talking as what has happened. Although the Corinthian does get a good shot into the hand of Dream at one point, which very much surprised Morpheus. Uh, But in the end, he was able to uncreate the Corinthian, but not before the Corinthian got a couple good jabs into him about how he feels about humanity. And we finally got to see the teeth for eyes that, at least Ashley, Sean, and I knew were coming, and I'm really excited to hear how Bex felt about that later on once we get there. Once we move out of the hotel, Rose and Jed head to the hospital where Lyda is having her baby. We are also joined there by Hal, Ken, Barbie, Chantel, and Zelda. After Rose leaves the hospital and decides she's finally going to go to sleep and confront the Dream King... The vortex part of her literally comes into the dreaming and starts ripping apart the dreams of her friends. This leads to the inevitable talk down that Morpheus and Rose must have as he tries to convince her to let dream destroy her to save humanity. But at the last minute, Unity Kincaid shows up and lets Morpheus know that she was actually supposed to be the dream vortex But while Dream was away and she was stuck in her long slumber, she was actually impregnated by a golden-eyed man that we had a quick cutover to to remind us, hey, that's Desire, in case you might have forgotten who that could possibly be and didn't pick up all the signals ahead of time. Rose then pulls out a heart-shaped piece of glass 
from inside of her, which is causing her to be the vortex, gives it to her great grandmother, Unity, who accepts it and sacrifices herself so that Rose may live and ends the dream vortex for this age. Things then wrap up quite nicely with Rose and Jed heading back to New York alongside with Hal, her house sitter, who is still alive. It was nice to see that. And Lyta and the yet-to-be-named baby boy seemingly having a great time in New York. Dream seems to have wrapped up things nicely after threatening desire that if they were to ever interfere, he would forget that they were family. And lastly, we're taken back to hell where we are met with Azazel letting Lucifer know that the generals of hell are essentially demanding that Lucifer allow them to go and take on dream in the dreaming. And with the summary out of the way, we slide over into hot takes. Ashley, what do you want to start with this week? Okay, so I honestly expected there to be a larger showdown between the Corinthian and Morpheus. Like, I just thought it was going to be a little more dynamic, especially when we got to stabbing. Uh, so when that didn't culminate into anything much but a stern talking to, I was a little bummed. Biases aside, truly, just a little bummed, <laughs> frankly. But I, I did like the commentary on humanity and exploration of that. What I am living for that I wasn't anticipating was this steadily building tension between Barbie and Ken. After the <laughs> first couple times we got it this season... I started paying attention, but this episode in particular, it just felt like they were like, hey, remember these two. They're going to come up again. So I, I just enjoyed that a lot because it was subtle but persistent. Yeah, I feel like I, I do want to see more Barbie after that. Mm -hmm. I feel like that that was a great performance. It's like a, uh, she has a lot of like charisma. It's, it's mm -hmm. going to be exciting if hopefully we get to uh, explore her st story more. Yeah. Well, Sean, why don't you just keep rolling there? Okay, okay, yeah, sure. Um, start off with a couple things I really liked. Uh, I think in general, the special effects are pretty great, pretty consistently throughout the show. It's that's it's been a real uh, a real highlight to see what they've done there and how they've visually represented at times some pretty abstract things. Uh, I thought when Fiddler's Green transformed from a person into a place that was gorgeous. I loved seeing that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, is, is very touching and just kind of beautifully like captured the mag magic of that experience. And that they were there in Fiddler's Green. Like that's mm -hmm. what empty Fiddler's Green looks like. I thought that was really yeah. cool. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I also really liked the way they had sort of the actual vortex, like sucking in mm -hmm. Hal and Zelda and Chantel and Jed and all that. Um, you know, in the in in the comic book, that's really represented very abstractly. Like you see that as a sort of uh, double page spread, and you see Rose in the center of it, and there's sort of a swirling uh, clouds around, and then you get separate panels with all of the the housemates. And I thought they did a great job of translating that. Uh, also loved the 
collectors leaving the mm. hotel um, that was like creepy and, you know, with the gunshot to the side and things like that. It was like, that was a um, exciting moment, I think. And of course, Dream and Desire on screen together. They have mm. such great chemistry that uh, that scene was just wonderful. So how many people do you think will dress up in that costume for Halloween this year or next year? Ooh, uh, we we should we should hope plenty, right? That would bode well for <laughs> yeah, for us, yeah. The future of the series, yeah. Did you see the nod towards the the furry, Sean? I know you were concerned about that last I week. I did. Yeah, you were really concerned about it. And yeah. everything. I was... You were concerned, so okay. Well, I was. <laughs> Let's not overstate my interest in that particular <laughs> aspect of the character. It's pretty minor. I'm not personally invested in this in any way, but you know, God love you if you are. I hope that did it for you. But um, all right. But all yeah. Right. Okay. So on to my inevitable um, spicy take. You know, we talked last week uh, when we were talking about the comic about kind of what I think the Doll's House the storyline is about. It's about growing up, about intimacy, relationships, boundaries, control, and learning to navigate all of that. And ultimately, I have to say, I feel like the show flattened that out very much. Um, there just wasn't that central theme that was explored, uh, in all these different ways as there was in the comic. And the, the most heartbreaking part of it to me is that I think they must have thought they were making Rose a more compelling character by making her like proactive and capable and determined and intelligent, powerful, caring, open, all these things. And comic Rose is like none of those things when we met her. Um, but that's okay because, you know, in stories, characters generally like grow and change based on the experiences they have. And unfortunately, this Rose kind of doesn't. She's all of those things when the story starts and she's all of those same things when the story ends. Um, you know, I'm trying to kind of think like, what is the arc of Rose's character? I, you know, I suppose she like learns to trust herself, I guess. Um, but the real change that happens isn't with Rose at all. It's with Morpheus. Morpheus is the one who learns mm. to open up a bit, to accept help from others, to be less rigid in his outlook. So, you know, what bums me out um, is that, like, in the ways that are important to me, they did I think a real disservice to Rose's character by taking her story and making it all about the Sandman. Great. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Bex. Um, well, mine will not be as beautifully thorough as Sean's look into Rose's character. <laughs> my, my hot take is what it, I could not buy. And maybe this is just like what I grew up knowing or learning or conceptualizing, but how is there any sort of functional hierarchy in hell? Like, I, I appreciate that uh, Lucifer says like, oh, you guys stopped arguing long enough to actually meet. But I was like, lords of hell? In what world do they have like some sort of government or hierarchy system that is consistent? Um, and I, that, that was just like the one thing. I love the way that um, Azazel, I always called him Azazel, but I guess it's Azazel. So did I, um, yeah. Right? yeah. That's, that's on Supernatural, which I, I'm outing myself, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I uh, really liked the way he looked, but I think that whole scene for me, um, which I 
we'll get into, I know, but that whole last scene with Lucifer, it just didn't hit the way that it did with like desire. Like the, the scene with desire and dream, I feel like gave me so much more foreboding and angst, like anxiety rather than when we cut to hell and, and Lucifer's like stewing in hell and is like, mm, I'm going to get him and I'm going to get God. And I'm like, I don't know that I really believe that. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I feel like the, the sting wasn't quite there, which sucks because I love um, that actress. And I think she does an incredible job, like in all the other scenes that she does. And I don't want to blame her for it. Or I don't know if it's just the way that it was written or, or whatnot, but I was frustrated by that. But um, I just fascinating that, there's the Lords of Hell. That's really what I thought. It <laughs> really stuck out to me. I was like, oh, I'd imagine it'd just be like pure chaos and anarchy. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. Bex, if you want to learn much, much more about the hierarchy of hell, check out our uh, our read along issue on the our episode on the the comic issue that talked about this. I think it's issue four, but yeah, four. yeah we go into into a lot of depth yeah. on like how that hierarchy arose um mm-hmm. you know it's based on like and, and like because in in the comics mm-hmm. uh hell is actually ruled by a triumvirate at that time <laughs> so it's even <laughs> more complicated Including, yeah, yeah by azazel and uh the the Bezel- belzebub yes that's so spicy yeah. okay yeah it's really right. yeah yeah and that's like <laughs> and that's like dc canon at that time that's what's happening in hell. So that's what Neil Gaiman had to work with in the comic. It's it's trippy. It's good. Yeah, it's good. That's really it's really, really interesting. I'm gonna have to. I, I do want to say I started listening to the the watch along episodes where where you guys are referencing the com- the books. But then I was like, oh wait, no, I want to like read these. I don't know. I felt like I was spoiling things, even though I have already watched the show. But I just want to preface not. that. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Uh, all right. So my quick hot take actually also goes along kind of a combination of Sean's and Beck's. And it's the it was the and this is something that I complained about earlier was the flatness of Lucifer um, in the comic. And I know we're not supposed to do this too much, but like in the comic, Lucifer is by far the most dynamic character that has been created in a really long time. It's kind of my take like this version of Lucifer uh, and then what Mike Carey does with this version of Lucifer in in um, their own uh, story. And I'm just so, bu- I, I, I guess we're going to get more in season two of Lucifer, uh, which is great. Uh, and I hope they just kind of start to like round out a lot more of it. Um, but I thought that they nailed the visual for Azazel. I know Sean, you were nervous if they're like, Oh, I, you know, I guess they probably couldn't have done it. And it's just like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause that's a hard, but there's a whole lot of like CPU usage going into making those teeth look really good. And I was very impressed. I, you know, I saw it and I still don't know if I think it looks silly or good. I, I haven't landed there yeah, yet. Fair uh, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but okay. That, that's, that, that'll, that'll go into my consideration. There you go. All right. So let's take a look at our first scene in our scene by scene breakdown. The Corinthian and Rose have a chat about what is quote best for Rose end quotes. He then leaves to give the keynote presentation to the other collectors. During that, he is interrupted by Morpheus. They start to have a conversation, and the Corinthian stabs Dream. A short start here to our breakdown. Ashley, you're up first. Yeah, I I was honestly at first a little surprised when the Corinthian's like, your choice, I'll tell you what, I'll give you both keys to the room. 
you can make your decision. But then I was thinking about it and I realized he's never really been told no by a human before. Like he's never, people kind of just always go along with what he wants because he's so charming. So I, I think there's still a part of him (laughs) that just kind of assumed that Rose and Jed would be like, yeah, okay, handsome man, we'll go with you. Um, So the fact that that's not the case, I frankly kind of enjoyed because I always uh, love when people usurp authority. Um, So this was just, it was just kind of an amusing scene where I was first like, wait, how are you making this so easy for them? And then realized that, you know, there was more to it. And I thought that that entrapping them in a series of dream sequences that she was just going to progressively link together was really fun. Um, I just kind of wish that that had carried on a little longer rather than just showing three of them and then putting them in the middle. I wish there, there had been some sort of like haunted house of horrors type, like serial killer maze or labyrinth or something that they had. I just, I expected it to be more dynamic than it was. So I felt like, the setup was awesome, but then the follow through was a little bland for my taste. Um, I did love the Corinthian speech in delivery, and I thought that that setup to then Morpheus's entrance was very cool and kind of what I pictured. But then again, setting up for this big conflict, and then once they finally meet, it was just kind of like a stern talking to. And the most shocking part about it was when the Corinthian stabbed his hand. And so it's like, okay, what's going to happen now? Is this going to get more physical than it is? And then it didn't It didn't really. It was just kind of a disappointing sort of like, I just, I wanted to see what it would like to be human. Okay, well, you're dust now, bye. So then the most exciting part of, about his exit, the Corinthians exit was him turning into a three-mouthed skull, little pocket skull, you know? And I was like, oh, cute. You're cute even in death. Um, so... It was just, I, again, a lot of, like, really great setup, in my opinion. But then the follow-through, the actual, like, finale of those conflicts was just kind of a letdown to me. Bex, did you know the teeth for eyes were coming? Don't we? Well, we see him it, with the social worker. He snacks on them. <laughs> um, but we see from his perspective, right? <laughs> right. Or, yeah. yeah. And honestly... I just was hoping that he had teeth eyes, I think, in that episode, because the idea of him just eating eyes in his regular mouth was terrifying to me. So I just <laughs> I just chose my own narrative to be like, oh, maybe he's like, because I at first thought that he didn't have eyes and that they that he could just like put the eyes of those who he kills mm-hmm. in his sockets and then use them to like see or like their see their experience or their memories or whatever. So then when I heard like crunch, crunch, I was like, okay, um, <laughs> we're just going to believe like he's that. He's just so, snacking on some cuties. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah. Well, you're not far off. I love that yeah. the idea of him eating people's eyes through his little eye mouths is more palatable to you than eating eyes through the normal mouth, the, nor- the way we would normally eat eyes. Well, if, he, if he's snacking on eyeballs in his normal mouth, that makes him too much of a guy. It's just like a guy eating eyeballs. If he's got three mouths, <laughs> then it's like, okay, well, he's a monster. What do you expect? He's a monster. He's got purpose. He's got purpose yeah. if he's eating it, what like, with his little mouths. What else are you going to do with mouths? three mouths? <laughs> but, yeah. but seeing, actually seeing it was 
horrific. I did not enjoy that at all. It, it, there was no. some sort of uncanny valley experience that <laughs> really set me off. I was like, no, I don't like it. So that was that was definitely um, a sight to behold for sure. I, I wrote in my notes that something about the scene feels weird, though I'm not quite sure what. And I think, Ashley, you might have hit on what it was. Um, but I and I also agree that the setup was really cool there. Like Rose goes to sleep, all the it enters into all the serial killers' dreams. I also really liked uh, Corinthian giving a speech, and he encourages everyone to close their eyes, and that's like dreams' entrance. I thought that was a clever way to make it happen. In the comic, they also just sort of like freeze in place, basically. Uh, you get that sense, but in this one, you know, it happens in this very natural way that I appreciated. I feel like the, the Corinthian speech to the group was pretty comic accurate, but I don't think any of those collectors came off as as cool as Corey <laughs> would be describing them. Like, you never really kind of, you never really feel any kind of way about Nimrod or Funland. Um, you know, you don't get this sort of like, Hannibal Lecter vibe, like, you know, where they're like sort of dashing and charming and, and clever, but also like murderous, which seemed to be kind of how he was explaining it. But they're really not that. So my thinking from seeing that was that, you know, Corinthians just kind of like gassing them up and manipulating them because he's in it for the glory, likes the adulation, you know, wants to kind of spread his murder gospel far and wide and is using them to do that. But then, you know, you hear his speech to Morpheus a little later on, and it seems like he genuinely does admire humans. And then you're kind of like, well, why are you, why are you murdering them all the time then? Like, stop doing that. Um, well, but I guess. Like, I felt, I feel, I felt like just like on that, on that little point right there that he really felt like that this, like these people in this room are at like the apex of what he views as the best of humanity, which is this we kill to kill. Like there's no other reason we kill to kill. And that's, that's the reason for killing. None of these other things that people say there about it. It's the, it's the actual killing is the reason that we kill for. And that's like the apex of humanity, like in his minds, that's how he was created. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it does come down to like, that's what he was created for. Right. So I suppose that is what, but he, you know, he made it seem so much like he wanted to experience being human. And that was his way of experiencing being human. I just think he needs a little, like, he needs a little moral guidance, maybe something like a, a stern talking to or something, you know? Um, but I also thought, oh, his, like his line delivery when he's like, when he's like, let's find out, you know, that was so cool. Like he seemed, it was a very badass moment there. Uh -huh. um, and then, you know, the, the actual, stabbing Morpheus through the hand was such a surprise because it happens very differently in the comic. And, and so I like that little, you know, the, the little thrill there. It was quite nice. Anybody else on this first scene before we move on? I, yeah. I just wanted to say, Ashley touched on it. The, the thing that I got from this scene was that he was getting a stern talking to that Corey was getting a stern talking to from his dad, you know, like <laughs> it, father dream. And that was really interesting to me. And I, I agree. I think that like maybe um, he was, it's clear that these humans aren't as good at him as him or as suave as him. 
And maybe that's kind of the dream that he's continuing to try to build with them is like you said, gassing them up and trying to make them into something that's more like himself. Um, I just, I found that that conversation with him and Morpheus really interesting. And when he talks about how, you know, nightmares are supposed to show you what you should never try and be or try to do and how he's just really inversing that like in his creator role. I, I, I really like their mm-hmm. conversation, but it, it did seem like a weird build up and then let down. But I think I was so anxious for dream that I was like, Oh, that's it. He just gets stabbed in the hand. Okay. <laughs> like it was like kind of an <laughs> exhale for me. I didn't have to worry so much. I get really into TV shows. And so I get really, really stressed when I watch things. I was like, I can't handle another beat down like he had with Lucifer. <laughs> so I was grateful. I think Morpheus does literally say, I'm disappointed in you, which yes. we all know. That's that's like their their that's like your parents' ultimate weapon against you. Yep. <laughs> yes. All right. Scene number two, Rose is now in the dreams of the various collectors. The Corinthian and Dream try to convince Rose to do what each of them wants. The Corinthian wants her to take over the dreaming. In Dream, well, he needs her to die. Dream then uncreates the Corinthian after Rose ends their tete-a-tete. And he then subjects the other collectors to now know their shame. Rose and Jed leave the hotel and discover that Lyta is going into labor. So they head to the hospital. Bex, we start with you. Mm. I I really appreciated Rose in this scene. Um, it kind of feels like a toy that Dream and the Corinthian are are fighting for and pulling at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of this this binary system, right? You either do what the Corinthian wants or you do what Dream wants, and that's it. And she's Rose is not about that. Like she doesn't know that there's really another way out, but she's like, um, no, like <laughs> I don't want to die, but I also don't want to you know, bow to somebody's whim and do something. So I I appreciate it. And I feel like that is where I've seen, that's where I, that's where I see her growth the most is in that decision-making where she hasn't quite figured out um, what she's going to do. But in that moment, she just calls it. She's just like, no time out. Like I'm not, I'm not getting in between this. And I I really appreciated um, kind of that ability to zoom out I feel like when I'm in between an argument or there's something going on, I'm so in it that I don't think of like Mm -hmm. something outside, but she really does. She takes a step back and and kind of reconsiders and being like, okay, well, like how, how are these the only two things going on? Um, So I, I liked that aspect of that scene. Um, And then the, the scene with um, the admonishment of the serial killers was really, really powerful, I think. And then the, that following was like intense. I definitely like looked away for a couple of parts, but um, I thought that was really interesting. Sean, let's zoom back in there a bit more on Rose, uh, a very different Rose than we get in the comic, much more action oriented, much more decisive, like much more I'm taking control of things. But I know you kind of felt some, you missed some of the Rose from the comic. Yeah, I, I, I miss the rose from the comic and i understand what beck's saying and that's kind of the the thing that i had to grasp on to as well because that's been the one kind of character development that she's had um 
you know, previously she has expressed a lot of uncertainty. You know, she's talking to Fiddler's Green earlier and saying like, oh, what, well, uh, you know, what if, what if, Jed doesn't like me and things like that. Like, and then when the social worker is talking to her and saying like, you know, can you handle this responsibility of like basically being, you know, becoming the legal guardian of your brother and, and she can't, she can't respond to that in that moment. And here she kind of takes control of the situation and kind of trusts in her, her feeling there, which, you know, is nice. I don't think there's as much like, depth to it and complexity as there is uh in the comic but that that is that that is a moment of growth that counts there other than that i feel like well okay like light is back now and it feels like she always just has to looking fabulous yeah she always just has to pop in like every few minutes and be like remember me okay i'm doing a thing now i'm still in this right (laughs) And it's just, it feels very disconnected from all the ideas that are kind of central to this, to this plot line. Um, And, you know, I hate to go back to the comic again, but in there, it's like very clear how Lyda and Hector reflect the idea of like, we'll talk about it, you know, in the issue too, uh, reflect the idea of like putting up walls to sort of hide away. And in a sense, they sort of mirror the morpheus and not a dynamic of the tales in the sand issue it just goes a different way you know like morpheus wants to live in this like fantasy world where it's him and nada and all is well but nada has the strength of character to be like no man that's that's messed up i'm not gonna do this um and then we see yeah right and then we see how like kind of messed up that relationship dynamic is with lyda and hector in the comic in the show not at all so it just kind of like creeps up on us out of nowhere and i feel like it was also maybe not a a great decision to like go straight to the hospital from there because i mean like jed let's not forget about jed and the fact that he exists here like he just learned his mom died not only did his mom die but he was his his foster parents died were murdered he was kidnapped he was almost murdered Like, that kid has experienced a lot in a little while, and it's like we just kind of toss him aside. Like, he's not useful to the plot anymore, so we don't worry about him anymore. And it's just rude, Rose. It's why you don't make people MacGuffins usually, right? Because of this exact issue. Because once you have the person, well, you then have to engage with the fact that you have a person that was now your MacGuffin. You know, whereas with the MacGuffins, like, a thing, it's like, okay, oh, yeah, you got the thing, but the thing doesn't have feelings, so it doesn't matter that you have the thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, so, so that was a, a, a little, a little tough there. Yeah. Ashley. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll get back to what both Bex and Sean have said because I largely agree with them. But just to go back to the, the sort of um, fighting over Rose between the between the Corinthian and Morpheus, it felt a little. It wasn't intended to be this way, but it did give me Twilight vibes. In that there's two guys <gasps> fighting over a girl. You know what I mean? Like, just, like, kind of a silly... Like, they're just yelling at her to make to choose. To choose between the two of them. <laughs> and that's the conflict. Is them just yelling at her to choose. And then her big, emo- like, emotional character arc is 
realizing she doesn't need either of them. And I just kind of laughed the whole time. And I was I think the problem is we didn't see anybody's abs. That was the problem. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) true. Imagine if like Dream would have just like pulled his shirt up a little bit, you know? (laughs) Well then, yeah. probably wouldn't have won. (laughs) 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 So yeah, I just, I think I was a little frustrated that I couldn't take that big moment more seriously. Um, Mm. So that's just kind of like, the tone I felt the enti- that the entirety of that particular conflict. And I already said, I thought the little Corinthian skull was cute, but um, agreeing with, with uh, Sean entirely on like Lida is just kind of conveniently there. I, I really wish she weren't. I kind of just, mm. I kept expecting, I kept expecting there to be way more drama with that pregnancy and the actual birthing of this dream baby than there was the mm-hmm. fact that, that they do, they, they completely zoom through any of Jed's trauma. Not that we need to see like a play by play, but just maybe him not being so happy go lucky yeah, and just maybe a, an exhausted look on his face while they're driving away. Something, something to signal that he has in fact acknowledged what has happened in this like 24 hour span. Would have been nice. But well, then, he forgot yeah. about it because Zelda showed him some some dead spiders and he just kind of <laughs> right. walked off to the side. <laughs> that was it. All right. <laughs> That's a new core memory. Uh, but yeah, Lyda just like sitting in bed, totally <laughs> chill, being like, you know what? I've got a baby now. Husband who? It's just It just felt very sort of completely whitewashed, like just sort of like panned over. Like there was some sort of montage of beautiful happy family in dreamland i don't know i just everything about it felt very glossed over and i hated it i just hated these scenes (laughs) yeah even the even the 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 housemates like i feel like that that family dynamic it doesn't always ring as legit to me it feels a little forced at times and like you want it because they're all interesting. They're all like weirdos and kind of cool and stuff like that. You want right. it, but I just wish they had earned it a little bit more. Right. No, exactly. And when Hal's like, I'm going to sell the house. And then literally nobody reacts. They're just like, oh, good for you. Okay, guys, you live there. Like you pay rent. Yeah. You all live. You've lost your home now. Do you have no emotional connection to the place you've been living for Lord knows how long? And, oh, yeah, like one of your housemates has gone home and now we don't know where that is. No reactions to that as well. Like it just felt very silly. So like really when it came to the hospital waiting room, the only part that compelled me was Ken and Barbie. I was like, ooh, trouble's brewing. Continue. Marital strife. Mm. Go on. The rest of it I could have just done without. Let's take a look at our next one. So Rose arrives at the hospital and joins Zelda, Chantel, Hal, Barbie, and Ken as they wait for Lyda's baby. Rose and Lyda talk about what she should do, allow herself to be destroyed to save humanity, or bring it all crashing down. Sean, got a short one here for you. Well, okay, so we've we've kind of talked about Lyda and her role here. We're definitely um, an anti Lyda podcast. We got that coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause the thing is, Oh, here we right, go. The thing is, <laughs> let's move past the line. I'm afraid that when I, tonight, when I fall asleep, dreams going to kill me, let's move past that. Okay. Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, okay. But then 
like, out of nowhere, Lyda is like, oh, you should definitely kill him. Like, that's her first suggestion. Where did that come from? Like, I, I get that she might want um, Dream dead, even, because he kind of killed her husband in front of her. But nothing and about... to steal her baby. And threatened to steal her baby. <laughs> um, but nothing about her performance or, like, the direction of the scene, like, the music, the camera, the lighting, indicate that she has this need for revenge or that she would try to manipulate Rose into being the instrument of her revenge. I'm kind of, like, just adding that in there from my own take. But she is just saying, go fight and kill the dream god, you know? Like, which is, is it's just, it's <laughs> it's a hard thing for me to get past. Actually, I, I thought that was in line with her character based on everything we've seen from her, where she is very obstinate and very much like, how do I, you know, you killed my family, you're going to steal my baby, you definitely need to die. She's already seen that, you know, Rose has said that, you know, you'll not, you're not going to hurt my friends and was able like to be the one in control of like ending the dream. So I didn't think it was too far away to get Lida to be like, obviously Lida is going to say you should, you should take over the dreaming. I didn't find it much of a stretch. Anybody else want to jump in? I think Lida just got her epidural. I think that she, <laughs> I think that she's gotten drugs. I think she's like, yeah, man, I'm about to have this baby. Just kill him. Like, I don't even care. Cause she doesn't even really beat to think about the fact that of what Rose said, like, I don't want the world to implode. So dream's going to kill me, but I don't really want that either. She's like, nah, just kill him. It's, it's, it's <laughs> fair is fair. Uh, I think she's a little bit out of the game and she's in her own little world. Yeah, like, no consideration of the consequences, potential consequences to that. Like, what Mm-mm. what happens when, you, when you, 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 you kill one of the endless? And then, like, what will Rose's position be after that? How is she supposed to deal with being the center of the dreaming and any of the potential consequences from that? There's just a lot to think about before you get to, like, encouraging your dear friend to murder someone, mm. you know? And I, and I say this in the gentlest way, but I think light is very selfish, because oh, she's absolutely. had this Don't be gentle about traumatic that. She is. <laughs> she Sorry, is. Like, she and I know that it's a traumatic experience to, to, you know, have like dream baby, right? And then that be real baby. But yeah, she just, it's like she's not interested in Jed. She doesn't really care what Rose is saying. She's just like, oh, will this affect whether or not this, you know, guy can take my baby? Yeah, go ahead and just off him. Right, mm-hmm. right. I, I just yeah. wish there was some attention paid to that moment. Does she sit there and think about what she's about to say mm-hmm. and how kind of horrible that is? There's no going back from like saying you should kill this person. Like I've never said that, but I presume that it's a very it's a it's a it's there's something in you that changes when you say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wish a little bit of attention had been paid to that. Ashley, what do you got for the scene? Yeah, I again, I agree with both of you. I can't stand Lyda, and I I would have thought that even drugged, she would have been more concerned about losing yet another person in her life, especially somebody she considers so precious to her. So the fact that she's just so zen about everything is really, I, that's to me, it's poor writing. I really dislike everything about the way she's coming off here. Apart from that, the one thing that really stood out to me that made me laugh considerably was uh, Chantal's mention of Zelda's um, 
homily about footprints in the sand, that really ridiculous oh, yeah. hokey poem. <laughs> <laughs> I like that made me laugh so hard. I just loved the fact that that was included and the idea of them trying to communicate that to Jed as if that would be comforting in any way <laughs> is hysterical. You know, yeah, I, you know, I love Jed, that too. Yeah. yeah, that was a good bit. You know, you know when when your foster parents were abusive to you, and also you were then <laughs> saved slash kidnapped by a literal nightmare, and then also you know trapped in a motel with a bunch of serial killers. Well, that's when God was carrying you. <laughs> like that, I just would I would love a cutscene of that moment. <laughs> I also oh, love man. how earnest that delivery was. Yes, um, that's what made it the, so perfect. Yes. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to go down to the beach and count our own footprints, and we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back for the second half of this episode. Rose is back in the dreaming, and her housemates' dreams begin to bleed into one another's. Then a literal vortex appears and starts to destroy their dreams. Rose is transported to a barren wasteland where Morpheus awaits. At the same time, Unity Kincaid meets with Lucienne in her library to try and find the book of her life if she hadn't ever fallen asleep. Gilbert, a.k.a. Fiddler's Green, arrives and attempts to sacrifice himself for Rose. But sadly, it doesn't work that way. And instead, he transports himself back into Fiddler's Green. Dream then begins to uncreate Rose. Ashley, you kick us off this time. I did not know what to expect with how they were going to craft the scenes regarding Rose and the Vortex sort of sucking up all of her friends in the dream world. I didn't know how that was going to be animated. Um, and I'm still conflicted as to whether I liked it or not. I didn't dislike it. I didn't think it was poorly done necessarily. Uh, I think I was just looking forward to a little more liminal space, oddly, rather than being settled in like a grounded area where like, where it was like a grassy field and like lots of, elements of other dreams coming in. I think I was expecting more of a blank space with like odd sorts of odds and ends floating about. I'm not sure. I just expected, I think as in with other scenes in which there were going to be big climactic moments of different, different areas coming into conflict. I expected there to be a little more chaos than there was this. It just was like, Oh yeah, there's a portal opening up in the middle and it kind of looks like sand. So like, I guess that's a continuity thing that works well in that when they get sucked up into the vortex, it kind of looks like they're dissolving into sand as they get further down. That is neat. But I guess I'm, I still feel like I'm trying to talk myself into liking it rather than having instinctually just out of a gut response to the scene, having liked it. Um, So I guess do with that what you will. Um, I still find Barbie and Ken's conflict funny, especially considering she's in her princess gown standing next to Martin Tendones while her husband is just in a car (laughs) with the nurse. Um, (laughs) It's just like, again, their dreams are so very different. And even though, again, not to, not to 
delve into this too much, but in the comics, we do see that their dreams are very different. And I like that that's at least consistent in the show, that they're demonstrating that they, they have very different imaginations and how they use their imaginations. I think that is a good, uh, consistent comparison of, of their characters. I also really surprisingly loved this scene between Unity and Lucien. I think they have really great scene chemistry and not much was said, like enough was said to move the plot along, but I thought the way they worked off of one another was just, it had energy to it that I wasn't expecting. I just thought it was going to be, yep, there's some exposition. We're going to move forward. But I realized I wanted more scene work from them. Um, And, you know, sadly, I don't think we'll ever really get that again. I mean, I could be surprised, but I just, I loved how the two actresses worked together in that scene and it made it way more emotionally dynamic than I was anticipating. I don't know if you guys felt the same. I hadn't really thought about it, actually, but yeah, I can see that totally. Yeah, I totally picked up on that, Ashley. I I just, the only thing that I can think of is just like, the like, the, this is just like black women magic as far as like the actresses yeah, go. Sure, like, yeah. They really mm-hmm. just like, I feel like they just vibed really well and there wasn't a lot said yeah, it was just a beautiful scene. I also really love both of those characters a lot. They're two of my favorite, mm-hmm. I think, of the series. So it was fun getting to see them interact with each other because I definitely wasn't expecting that, just from like n- not knowing any of the plot moving forward. So I really, really enjoyed that scene. Yeah, it felt like they were, I guess, now looking back on it and hearing your thoughts, it was like these are two women who feel responsible for two other sort of like dream concepts and so they're both working together now trying to figure out how to safeguard the people they feel like they're in charge of protecting um (laughs) and i i kind of want like a spin-off series of lucien and unity like solving dream mysteries oh my gosh no i would want that (laughs) (laughs) it's like supernatural but for dreams exactly it's great um just to back to step back for a moment does does rose have any sort of plan for what she's gonna do like she knows it's gonna go down when she goes to sleep but like she doesn't seem to have prepped at all you know like i'm thinking like nancy and nightmare on elm street you know she's got when she goes to sleep first of all she's taking all those like they're all taking all those pills to like stay awake and everything, um, mm-hmm. which would kind of make sense for Rose in this situation too. But then when she does go to sleep, she's got a plan for Freddy Cougar. Rose seems to have no plan whatsoever. Um, but I did really like the, uh, I, I, I think I did like the, the vortex and everyone being sucked in. I liked seeing all their dreams. The dreams were good. It's a very touching moment between uh, Chantel and Zelda where yes, uh, Zelda yeah. is like talking her down from this this obsessive like repetition of the same few mm-hmm. lines, and she sort of changed it. I thought that was really touching, uh, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that. And man, like Ken busted, man. I it's it's on some <laughs> level, it's it's is it fair for Ken to get in trouble because of a dream he had? Like <laughs> he's not really in control of that, but he's gonna pay the price for it. Certainly, so I, you know. <laughs> Like, Ken's a bit of a douche, but I, I feel for him in that sense. Yeah, I think I think if all the other things with Ken weren't going on, you know, I think maybe that more is like, you know, you're like, oh, I saw your dream last night and you were, you know, you know, receiving oral sex from the nurse that you saw the thing. It'd be like, you know, but the fact that he was, you know, doing all the other things, I feel like that's why he's in the doghouse. It's not the, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. at the actual dream itself. Um, a couple things I think worth noting about this moment. One, the logic of the library of Lucian's library changes a little bit from what I was yes. expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, because here we have it where the library contains every book that's ever been written and every book that will be written, which raises some interesting philosophical questions there. Like how, how, how does that work exactly? Um, but in, in the version I was expecting, the library contains every book that was ever written and every book that was unwritten every book that was dreamed was never of never written yeah but never written yeah so that and that's oh. a little a, a little shift in the logic there that i find interesting the other the other moment was so largely i liked the fiddler's green scene i like all the fiddler's green i like like everything he contributes except his proposed explanation for the vortex which i found to be a bit uh-huh. cheesy he says when a human is at the center of the dreaming, is it not to remind us that we exist because humans dream, not the other way around? The miracle of humanity itself should always be more vivid to us than any marvels of power. Which kind of sounds nice, but it's a bit empty because, like, dream has to kill that person. <laughs> so are you really being reminded of the inherent value and 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 miracle of human life if your next step is to have to kill that person i don't know i almost thought it was because like i it seemed like morpheus was actually feeling really bad about the fact that he had to kill rose and i think that is a reflection of that he recognizes that these aren't like this is this is like a human with all these like complexities and emotions and suffering and you know successes like in their life and like and that I think that that is the thing that it does reflect is, you know, if he didn't care, like Rose, Rose would have been dead so long ago if he wasn't being reminded of humans, humanity and the fact that the dreaming is there for humans and humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It just sucks. A person has to die every time he has to learn this lesson over and over again throughout <laughs> eternity, presumably. <laughs> yeah, it would be, you know, this is something that we never know because it's not, you know, explored at all, but what is he going to do the next time a vortex shows up? Thank you. Right. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like what has he learned? And has he treated every other one differently? You know, maybe historically, as soon as they show up, he just like gets rid of them immediately. Whereas here he's like, well, maybe if they stick around, like we could figure out something else that might be able to, you know, do it. So I, I am interested. It'd be interesting to hear like even like a little short story about what happens the next time. Yeah. It's interesting to see what things Dream has control over, like within his abilities as one of the endless, and what things are kind of outside of his control. And I think just because I care about the characters, I was frustrated. I was like, really, Dream, you haven't figured out how to fix this after you destroyed a universe doing it? Like, Or maybe that's why, I guess, maybe that's why he doesn't mess with it is because he did try to do something and that vortex ended up destroying another universe. Um, But I I found that um, a little bit surprising that that wasn't one of the things that he was trying to combat or change just based on all the power and ability he does have. I get that. I get that the idea of the vortex is that there is some sort of uh, formidable force, uh, like opposing force. But um, I think it would have, 
I think it would be really neat to see him try and problem solve through that for the eventual next vortex that occurs. Excellent. Okay, let's look at our next scene. At the last moment, Unity arrives and explains that she was supposed to be the vortex. But when she was sleeping, a golden-eyed man in her had a baby. This would have been Rose's grandmother. And that caused the powers of the dream vortex to be transferred to Rose instead. Rose, at the behest of Unity, pulls out a piece of heart-shaped glass and gives it to Unity. Unity takes it and then dies, saving her granddaughter and causing the dream vortex to end with her. We then learn that the man that fathered Unity's daughter was, in fact, Desire. Dun dun. <laughs> Bex, we begin with you. I don't know if you guys ever watched that show, Maury, but that's what this scene was for me of like, <laughs> you are the father. <laughs> the drama, the baby, the like, yeah, the drama, the whole drama of this scene. It's so much. And I have a million questions because. It, it's there's so many questions surrounding how unity was impregnated which like does it make it better or worse knowing that desire was involved right like and i don't know anything about desire so does this mean that desire like obviously we know that we learn later why desire was kind of plotting this out but is desire capable of like having feelings for humans? Like what, what are the implications of this reality? I guess besides, you know, what desire is trying to plot out. I, I, it's really, it's almost like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's such a hard subject because there's so many things that are implied by desires input and into the situation and, and kind of orchestrating this. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that's very different and much lighter is I can't decide whether I love the fact that the heart that uh, Rose makes looks so much like it's from a video game or if I hate it. <laughs> and part of me loves it because if I was dreaming, I feel like that's something I would also do is like, here's like this little like geometric, ridiculous, like, you know, unicorn fairy and rainbows heart but um that was also a, a stylistic choice that i'm on the the fence about but i'd love to hear input from you guys about poor unity i feel like man she gets the ultimate like shaft out of everyone <laughs> can you just Either explain you that in so many <laughs> just, it's like an easy question right that i just throw yeah, out yeah, without like a yeah, it's one of those things where it's like yeah it's one of those things where all three of us could explain it by but it would give away a whole bunch of the story oh, that people don't okay. know yet yeah, right. don't do that. And so that's like the, that's like the conflict, right? And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, what we know is that, you know, desire for whatever reason feels that they need to mess with dream in a really concrete and tangible way. And that this obviously isn't the first time that they have had, you know, a, um, a confrontation with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so what it see and kind of what happened here is that desire, you know, walked you know in the waking world you know as as we saw dream engage with people we've seen death engage with people right oh, and yeah, um okay. yeah and and during you know so when desire was in like you know the human world you know impregnated you know um you know unity and she had the baby and that baby was kind of like hushed up and you know this is something you learned in the comics kind of like hushed up and you know they kind of you know that's why you know while unity is in 
London, Rose and her mother are in America because the baby was kind of like sent over to America, right? And so mm-hmm. you learn a little bit more about that, like in the comic that kind of like, you know, spells that out. Um, but yeah, so that, I mean, the major repercussion is that means that Rose and Jed are both of the endless family, which just, that's the thing that it really opens up. I feel like it's like, oh, how many, like, you think you just have like seven endless and it's like, actually, They've been around since the beginning of time and who knows how many dalliances there have been and what that might mean for who else is out there in the world. Yeah. Like, is it a demigod situation or is it like, are these, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of implications that I'm curious about with that. Yeah. yeah. You will learn more. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, uh, yeah, that, those those are some interesting questions. I wish we hadn't have. I mean, Ben mentioned it, but cut to desire when they were describing that. Like, I just hate being condescended to so mm-hmm. much. I mean, just yeah. don't especially do that a show like, is especially that a show that is released all at once. Mm-hmm. It's like yes. it wasn't like this was like three seasons ago that they introduced this character, and I have to be reminded of it's like. Nope, like watched him watch that person four hours ago, you know, on the show. So, and also, yeah. Desire has such a specific aesthetic that they are so like they're they're not easy to forget. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? That in in so in this adaptation, it's framed as what Desire must have presumably traveled into the dreaming or something, because Unity has had this experience of like a whole romance. You know, it right. kind of she fell in love with desire and uh-huh. they had a whole thing in, in, in her dream life, which, mm-hmm. you know, which makes sense to me because again, it's just hard, you know, it's hard to move past that. If it's, if you're framing it as an assault, it's, right. it's a little tough to move past that. And this kind of soften the blow there in a way that I, I think it was a, it was a clever out for them. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashley, did you have anything else on this scene? Yeah, I just really think that Unity is a boss overall. Uh, the line, you're not very bright, are you? Really? Just, I, <laughs> the delivery, the look on her face, everything about it was just chef's kiss. I really. Did you see Lucienne's look when she, when she said that? Lucienne yes. kind of like smirked and looked <laughs> off to the side like, oh, damn. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I uh, I just really love that. I also love how they handled her death in that they, they did show her, like, real body mm. sort of just collapsing in into, like, a like a deep, I guess what you would call a deeper sleep in this case because she's in the dreaming now. But um, the fact that she kind of settles into the mattress um, and then you cut back and she's just like, what happens now? <laughs> because she didn't really necessarily experience, you know, an emotional death. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, generally speaking, I think Unity's storyline is one of my favorites for this specific reason, the choice she makes. Like Beck said, you know, she kind of gets the shaft in the sense of she really didn't live live much life. And then when she finally gets to live life and she's doing all these incredible things, she chooses to give that up for the sake of her family. I think that's I think that's really beautiful. And the fact that she does, I mean, ultimately end up in a, in a relatively good position having done so, you know, being in Fiddler's Green isn't so bad. Um, so I just I I appreciated this adaptation I think most out of anything in this episode, I just thought it was handled well. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's take a look at our final scene. Back in the waking, Rose, Jed, Lyda, her unnamed baby, and Hal all move to New York and live together in Rose's apartment. In the dreaming, Morpheus visits their sibling, Desire, and threatens them if they interfere in the dreaming again. Morpheus is then on the shores of the dreaming, building a new dream, Galt 2.0, and asks Lucien to watch over things while he creates. And finally, back in hell, Azazel meets with Lucifer and asks them to send the hordes of hell into the dreaming. Sean, you're up first. Okay, well, there's there's a lot here, so I might break it up a little bit and, and jump more back in, you know, later, because there's just, there's a, there's a lot to talk about with these, uh, this collection of scenes. Um, I thought it was Jed bringing back up what the Corinthian told him and then them using that as the reasoning for not naming the baby. Like, I thought, like, like there's a little... <laughs> It was a little creepy how it happened, but I thought it was, you know, it was a good way not to get the baby named. Um, uh, so it, you know, it, it, it worked. And when they talk about, when Jed talks about not naming the baby, kind of Lyda gives a look, you know, I, I don't know how much was actually communicated in that look, um, just because it's hard to read Lyda, like the, <laughs> the, the, the actress, um, <laughs> But I, I think overall, as a way to not get the baby name, that worked. And, you know, Zelda talked. It's a Christmas miracle. Zelda talked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, interesting. I'll go a little bit further here, and I'll I'll say that I love the whole desire and dream scene. I thought that was great. And I'll kick it to one of you so you can talk a little bit more about it. But I, I thought it was wonderful. Bex, you want to take that scene? No, I think Ashley should. I want to hear her thoughts. All right, Ashley, what do you got? Okay. Yeah, I agree. I I think that Morpheus and Desire continue to build on this chemistry. The actors continue to build on this chemistry that is really incredible and fun to watch. Uh, I love how physical their conflict is, you know, going up behind uh, Desire and just like wrenching their head back to like get Mm. their attention was just so so intense uh and usually you know i'm not i'm not like into manhandling anybody much less your siblings but in this case i think it was a little warranted considering all the manipulation that happened yeah. um, and it earns that moment because it's so yes. rare we right. see yes. morpheus right. take any sort of physical action so that exactly. lo- that aggression that was a great payoff there Exactly. So if like if that's the reason why we've been keeping Morpheus from really being more physical in combat or in in any sort of conflicts, if this was the payoff, I mean, it feels a little less than I would have preferred, but it still was a really great moment and I'm willing to kind of lay off if this if this was the payoff, I'm willing to to lay off the gas a bit. Um, but Again, Desire's body language in every scene is incredible. Like when they're describing the plot and sort of egging Dream on with regard to, 
you know, how they crafted things and how long it took Morpheus to figure it out. And the little shimmy they do <laughs> when they're being chastised mm-hmm. is so funny and so perfect. Like, I just kind of giggle the entire time Desire's on screen. Um, yeah. because I love the of... Desire poses before Morpheus yes. comes through, oh, right? Uh, like, takes absolutely. a moment to ready themselves. And, like, that was it's great. just like, yeah, it's great. just camp to the nth degree. And I really enjoy that. And I like how the threshold is designed, the interior of the threshold is designed because it is that sort of like 80s, like Mm. perfect sort of plastic interior, uh, which really communicates well uh, the tone of Desire's uh, realm as well as their impulses and, and their intentions. I like that we get a line specifically noting the idea of uh, family bloodshed and that there's an importance there that mm, we've not mm-hmm. been, we've not ad- necessarily addressed yet, but the fact that there is some sort of very specific consequence to the endless that the audience I'm sure will learn in the future. I like that that was eased in there without kind of being too on the nose but overall i thought this engagement was perfection like i really wish we would get i really hope we get more of this in season two because i thought it was just acted impeccably yeah yeah i i love how i love all of desire's acting choices basically i love Mm -hmm. how their voice gets all growly at certain times Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) i think that's great um and the the moment of tension when desire admits that they're not they're not strong enough to go up against dream and death and destiny like that that little pause before they're like no you know like that was great right right and then the the little smirk after when when um they're like, but we almost got you. Just the little smirk yeah. afterwards. <laughs> that was just really, it was great. I just love it. All right, Bex, do you want to take us to hell or to the shores of the dreaming? Oh, wow. What a choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I can take us. <laughs> I, let's go to hell. Uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, I um, I know I talked about this earlier. This I loved how they portrayed um, Azazel. I th- think that was really, really neat. And it, it was also just cool seeing a character, like a character in hell that isn't like a trollish sort of gargantuan mm, sort sure. of display or like warrior. Like this is, I-, I could see there being scenes with a, a, a Zazzle where I would genuinely be terrified. Um, because he, it, this thing is so otherworldly and look, it contains multitudes, right? Like there's a very mm-hmm. unsettling feeling about that. Um, but overall, yeah, I, it, this scene gives me the kind of vibe, like from the wizard of Oz, like I'll get you and your little dog too. Um, which is a bummer because again, I, I really love, the character Lucifer and, and I have great hope that it'll continue to um, for that plot to grow and for me to be invested. But I was much more disturbed by um, the sibling rivalry and sort of like undercurrent of the previous conversation. Um, And 
Lucifer doesn't get that. He, you know, they don't get to act off of dreams. So that's to their disadvantage, mm-hmm. I think. We only see that sort of, um, I called it mid-level supervisor pressure, where <laughs> Lucifer is like, got people that report to him, but he also has like some sort of person or like entity that he's kind of, are they reporting to, I should say. And so it's just kind of like the, oh, like when you're a mid-level supervisor and everyone hates you. <laughs> It sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think I liked that stress that I got from the character. But mm. yeah, everything else I think was, I, 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 I don't know. I, I almost kind of wish it was either a shorter scene or put somewhere else in the mm. episode. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with your, your feelings about like Lucifer's motivation there even not necessarily having the source material to contrast it with like you got the sense that there's something weird there and i agree with that like that line like oh you know mazakin asked lucifer what they're gonna do lucifer's like something that will make god absolutely livid and bring morpheus to his knees and it just seems like a bit of like a you know mischievous child whereas the 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 lucifer that i'm more used to is so sort of ambiguous in his motivations, you know, it kind of, when he enacts his plan, it almost seems like he's doing it for himself and just taking advantage of an opportunity with Morpheus. So he's like, well, I promised to destroy Morpheus and I might have, but did I, I don't really care. I'm doing my own thing, you know? Um, so it's just the Lucifer's motivations are a lot more complex and a lot harder Mm -hmm. to get a handle on in the book. And I think that serves, uh, an entity of that, you know, magnitude well to have those complex and ambiguous motivations. Whereas here it's just kind of laid out for you. Right. Cause, Uh cause we get what we learn in like the comics is it's, it's kind of like God, in terms of like power rankings, like God, Lucifer, and then like everybody else is like well below that. Like everybody right. is scared of Lucifer, no matter who they are, no matter what they are, what entity they are, what being they are. They are like there's a there's a great part in the comic where he has none of his powers. He is just like a human, like a, a human man, like in quotes, and everybody is still absolutely terrified of him, even yeah. though he is hmm. just has the power of a man. He has none of his powers whatsoever. And you don't, we don't have that quite yet. And it, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they already had Morpheus beat Lucifer once. So mm-hmm. you're kind of like, oh, well, like we know he's going to, we know Mor- Morpheus can win. So how can this be an actual like contest? So they're going to have to do some cleanup work, I think, in season two, if they're going to make us really fear like Lucifer. So agreed. I think they also, this is just like a side note. It probably doesn't bear nearly as much weight, but I really do think they need to work on the, hair and costumes for Lucifer because that robe looked like it was from Lover's Lane and there was <laughs> <laughs> it looks comfy as like, hell <laughs> and, and the, the hair just looks almost too disheveled like like they're dealing with humidity in hell as opposed to like every hair being exactly in place or at least like artfully tousled mm. um when you're trying to get curls just so and you still see like frizz it doesn't do much for the you know the essence of the character anybody else on this last scene i like the fact that galt gets to become a dream and i like the fact that we see this dialogue with morpheus and galt and lucienne with regard to changing and allowing um 
galt to to pursue this. I, I did giggle a little bit at the flight takeoff for the first time. Granted, Galt needs to learn how to fly, and that's fine. But getting up in the air and there being like the slight dip as they get used to like not being weightless necessarily, actually having to put effort forth by flapping wings. I think the size of the wings made it probably more comical than they than inspirational, so more comical than they wanted to, just because the wings were so much smaller than like what a sort of effortless inspirational flight could have achieved. Um, but overall, I mean, I think it's a nice conclusion to that story thread. The other one, the thing that disturbed me in that scene or like gave me uneasiness, I should say is when, um, Dream asks Lucien if she if she can hang on to like the shrunken head of the Corinthian, um, and not that I I trust Lucien, but something about it not being with Dream anymore, um, like leaves me uneasy. And I don't know if that was pur- purposeful or if he was. I don't know. It, it just kind of made me a little bit weary. Yeah, I think it was just a sort of a uh, a, a gesture of trust. And to kind of indicate that that dream has now, you know, made this move into like just, you know, letting others help him and sort of not being so locked away into himself all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are going to move over to our final thoughts. Sean, you are up first. Uh, Final thoughts for the episode, not the series. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, so just to continue off kind of what we're talking about just now, I'd, I'd like to get this in, is that the the scene on the beach I thought was beautifully realized. I thought it looked great for the most part. Like I thought it was the, the, the nightmares that he was making and things like that looked really cool. I was, it was a little weird to me that it was such a, a happy ending moment. Um, because it's so different than what I'm used to. Like the comic series, I don't think any storyline has a particularly happy ending. Honestly, I think it's, it's, it's always, you know, always a little bit weird and conflicted and mysterious. Um, whereas this put much more of a bow on things, uh, which may just be a product of it being, a TV adaptation. Like I almost think what had to happen here is like Netflix come in and it's like, look, we have all these data points saying people like <laughs> happy endings and they need these things. And you know, they want like uplifting, affirming things right now. And they don't want sort of dour, emotionally complex, you know, media, which I, I legitimately believe, um, might have been the case there. Um, but I think, what creates a bit of like tonal inconsistency to me is, and we haven't really talked about this at all, but they did bring in the, the, the guy who worked on the show, uh, David S. Goyer, um, who specializes in sort of really like grim and gritty stuff that takes itself seriously, even though like all the things that happen are ridiculous. So, you know, he, and sometimes it like really works well, like the, um, the, Nolan Dark Knight movies. Um, he he's a writer on like a movie from the late '90s. I don't know if anyone remembers called Dark City, which I thought, which I I really liked. Um, check it out; it's very cool if you've never seen it. Uh, I don't I don't know how it ages, but I like remember loving it as a kid. 
Um, and then times it doesn't work too well, like like the Batman v Superman movie, you know? <laughs> so it could definitely get sort of too dark there. And so I think maybe what he was bringing to the show, what I was expecting from the comic, and then what the, what the, the, the adaptation added to sort of tie everything up, almost a little sitcom-y sometimes, where, where Dream's like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, and everyone's like, oh, Dream. <laughs> um, so I, that, that was like, uh, it, was, it was a strange moment for me, but it did make me also realize that I do appreciate that they, the story takes itself seriously and the situations take themselves ser- seriously pretty much throughout, you know? Like, it has to be tempting to do that sort of, like, Marvel movie level of, like, the sort of self-deprecating winkiness, and they never do that. They just always accept the reality of the show as it's presented. Like, there's no moment where Rose is like, great, I'm taking advice from a talking bird or something like that, you know? Which which I think is a nice change from how... Um, from how really fantastic elements have been portrayed in movies and TV in recent years. Excellent. Yeah. I think they call that, um, bathos is like the word they use for what you're describing in like the, the MCU where you kind of have to like something serious is happening, but we're going to undermine it by going to like rocket making like a quirky comment about something. Right. It's that like using, using kind of like, you know, off humor to kind of like, pull us back and away from something that might have been meaningful. So bathos, B-A-T-H-O-S. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. so if you want to read, there are, there are lots of YouTube videos about it, so. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, all right, Ashley, your final thoughts. Yeah, two small things, hilariously both Corinthian related. One, I had been so excited <laughs> to see what the Corinthians' tears would look like when he was, like, choking up, kind of pleading oh, yeah, to stay alive. yeah, he was, alive. like, crying, right? Yeah. Right. But, like, there, I looked really closely, and I didn't actually see any liquid. I thought, I was like, what is it going to be? Blood? Spit? Like, it can't be something normal, like actual tears. But I didn't really see anything. So, missed opportunity. Figure that out. Uh, the other thing is that since we kind of had that episode... Um, the, the sound of her wings. So with death and her pep talk with Morpheus, I've been thinking a lot about the endless's role in this world that they've created. And then how those responsibilities are communicated to anybody under them and how that's reflected, how that's sort of understood. And then, uh, demonstrated based off of their level of understanding. And I think that this is where the having two nightmares having escaped and then express what they feel like their responsibility is differently really aids the story of Morpheus coming into his own and, and understanding his role in his responsibility for humanity. So then, you know, Galt's, and, and also then Desire's role in this conflict. So like Galt's desire ultimately when it comes down to it was to serve others, to serve humanity just in a different way. Like didn't want to serve as a nightmare, yep. Yep. wanted to serve as a dream. Whereas then the Corinthians' desire uh, was to serve himself. And he, he had sort of made himself think that he was serving humanity just in that sort of motivational talk he gave. Like he says 
that, you know, he, he wants the collector's dreams to come true. He kind of is trying to like elevate himself into this Morpheus like role uh, by sort of creating these opportunities for what he thinks as Ben, you said is the pinnacle of humanity to him. Cause he doesn't have any other way to sort of process what progress looks like apart from what he was created to imagine. He couldn't which, lead us to like the scientific future. Like, that. right. Like he can't make right. a whole bunch of Albert Einstein's. Like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. But that's what I, th- I think is really interesting then with the creation of Galt being able to see outside of her lived experience and her reality. Whereas like the Corinthian can't be anything other than the monster he was created to be. And and we hear Morpheus frequently talk about in the comics and in the show that the Corinthian was like a work of art in some regard as, as being created as a nightmare. So almost like the purest form of nightmarishness. So he just can't sort of excel above his station, even though he thinks he has. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting conversation. Um, mm. On, with regard to responsibility and inward states versus the functions and how they uh, manifest in the world around them. So I hope we get, we probably won't get exactly that storyline in the, in the next season, but I do like that discussion and that this uh, world as it's been created lends itself to that conversation. Well, thanks to all three of you for those final thoughts. And a special shout out to Bex for joining us for these last few episodes to wrap up the uh, the original story here of The Sandman on Netflix. Well, I think we wanted a bit more of a confrontation in this episode between Dream and Corey, as my illustrious co-hosts call him. Uh, but it did leave us a little wanting that they just kind of talked a little bit and then dream got a little bit of like a, a hand stab, uh, kind of going on. This is definitely an anti Lyda, but still pro Jed, but what happened to him and maybe don't make your person a MacGuffin and then not really deal with like his obvious trauma. Uh, we really felt like that was a bit lacking, um, we also enjoyed significant work done by Unity Kincaid, just a total BA and really brought a lot to this episode and really the last few episodes that she's been involved in. Wrapping things up, we wish they had done a bit more to help us fear Lucifer, but the work done um, by Mason Alexander Park and their betrayal of desire left us very excited to see what will happen in future seasons of The Sandman. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller. Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an Odd Conduit Media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. 
You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.